this world is amazingly strange. It is remarkable on the one hand, God made this world and it's tragic. This world has fallen and it's under the power of sin. This world can be beautiful and this world can be beast-like, can be exhilarating and it can be evil. And yet Calvin was right. This is This world is the theater of God's glory. It is the stage on which God's great plan of redemption is playing out. For Christians, what makes us see the world differently? Confident about the present and the future of the world. What makes the Christian confident that for as sad and sorrowful as the world can be, Sadness and sorrow will not be the end of the story of this world. The Apostle John teaches us not to love this world. But he also teaches us that God so loved this world by sending his own son into this world. And that's the the tension that the disciple of Jesus fills. Jesus loves this world that crucified him. And by being crucified, strangely, surprisingly, Jesus overcame this world. Jesus is very clear with anyone who would come after him, this world is coming after you. And yet, for the Christian, what's coming for us from the risen Christ is more than enough for us to overcome this world. That's what we're going to see this morning in John 16. John chapter 16. We're going to begin in the second part of verse 4. We're going to go to the end of the chapter. Here's the big point I want you to see as we work through these, these texts, this text this morning. Jesus has overcome this world. Jesus has overcome this world and he has given you all you need to overcome it. Jesus has overcome this world. He gives you all that you need to overcome it as well. We're going to see different things that are coming in this world. First, the coming spirit. The coming spirit. We'll begin there in the second part of verse four. We'll read to verse 15. The coming spirit. Look at the second part of verse four. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. But now I am going to him who sent me. And none of you asked me, where are you going? Because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. 
Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father, and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judge. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. He will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me. for He will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Jesus has just taught what we saw last week about the hatred of this world. And he waits until this moment to teach his disciples about the Spirit's help. The disciples, verse 5, no longer ask Jesus where he's going. It's not because they fully understand, but because, verse 6, they are too filled with sorrow to think beyond themselves. The disciples have resigned themselves to the fact that Jesus is leaving and notice that their thoughts are with themselves, not with Jesus. Jesus is concerned for them. Verse seven, he tells them again, it is to your advantage. I go away for in his going, the helper, the spirit will come. Now remember, when Jesus was on earth, he was bodily in one location. But when he goes to the Father, the Spirit comes to bring Jesus to dwell in every one of his disciples. So it's by going that the risen Jesus goes global. That's why it's better that he goes away than staying here cross, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus usher in this age of the Spirit. So Jesus here is not only going back through territory that he's he's already covered, but he's about to break new ground. Verse 8, he tells his disciples, the Spirit will convict the world. Now, if you're reading from the NIV, I love the way the NIV speaks of this. The Spirit will will prove the world to be in the wrong. The Spirit will work in such a way as to bring conviction and repentance to the world. That is what conviction is. It's when the Spirit graciously proves us to be in the wrong about something such that we know our need to repent. So Jesus has described this world as a hostile place. And he's telling his disciples, you'll have the gift of the Spirit to convict those who are in bondage in the world. And he mentions three ways, sin, righteousness, and judgment. Now, before we look at those, look at how gracious and powerful the work of the Spirit is. What does the Spirit graciously come to do in this world that hates God? Convict this world. Not every single person without exception, but certainly all peoples without distinction. This is the grace of God. He he could have sent the Spirit into the world to condemn the world. 
but the Spirit comes to convict. And by the work of the Spirit, many in this world will come out of this world to Jesus. Spirit convicts the world first, verse 9, concerning sin. He means many in the world will see their wrongness about sin. It's pervasiveness. It's reality. It's power. And they'll see their wrongness about who Jesus is, that he is the Christ and their need for him. And so they'll come out of this world and into faith in Jesus. And then righteousness, verse 10. Now, Jesus says, it's because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. What is he saying? Well, this takes different forms in different cultures, but this world believes it has a righteousness of its own or it believes that it can get a righteousness outside of Jesus Christ. So in Jesus' own day, the religious leaders were appalled that Jesus told them they were slaves who needed to be set free. Other religions offer a path to gain righteousness. And so the Spirit comes into the world to convict many in the world about just how wrong they are about righteousness and where righteousness is found. And verse 11, judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. At the cross, Satan was decisively defeated. And yet he still wages war against the church. But because of the cross, we know it's a losing battle. The world's ruler is judged, and many who serve the ruler of this world will be proved, convicted by the work of the Spirit to be wrong in their false judgments about Christ, about sin, about God's salvation. Now think of this, how many in Jesus's ministry were convicted by his teaching on sin, righteousness, and judgment? Relatively few. He goes to the cross alone. But soon the coming spirit will change that. And many people, to the shock of the apostles, will come to faith in the Messiah. I mean, is that not the only explanation for this room? The spirit has convicted many of us of our wrongness and of the truthfulness of Jesus concerning these things. As we begin this sermon, I would just ask, has the spirit convicted you of these things? Who do you say Jesus is? Do you believe in Jesus? You don't have a righteousness to offer to God. Now, for many people, that's not a big deal. It's not a concern to them. But the scriptures tell us that the most consequential question we could ask is how will I stand in the right with God, the holy God to whom I am accountable? Jesus has come into this world to live, die, and be raised to 
win and earn and give righteousness. The righteousness that we cannot earn, Jesus has. And it's a gift to be received by faith. Now, if you would think about that, you would realize that is such good news that you could never possibly make it up. That has to be revealed from heaven. No religion would think that up. Is the Spirit convicting you? Well, receive that as a gift and believe in Jesus Christ. Uh, This is summer. It's a great time to think about eternal things in your own life as you think about time and eternity. Why, after Jesus' death and resurrection and ascension, did the gospel go global? Because of the Spirit. We know from Jesus how powerful the hate of this world will be. Here is something even more powerful, the work of the Spirit. Today, so many Christians are occupied or maybe too preoccupied with the gifts of the Spirit. Jesus would have us be amazed by the gift of the Spirit. It's a sign that we've lost sight of how powerful this gift is, that we could even look around this room and not be in awe of the power of the work of the Spirit to bring together a body of such diversity with such profound unity. I mean, where else do you see such diversity and unity together? Even in this country. This isn't natural. It's supernatural. And if you know love for Christ and and you fight against sin in your own life, that's the work of the Spirit. Has this become old hat to you? Have you grown accustomed to the Spirit? Think what Spirit dwells within you. Don't live below the privileges that the Spirit of God gives to you. It is good that Jesus is going to the Father because the Spirit will convict the world and the Spirit will guide the world into truth. As much as Jesus has taught the disciples, they still cannot bear everything. Now, you understand this if you're a parent, if you're a teacher, or if you're just a somewhat mature adult. You know what it's like to wait or not to have certain conversations with children. There's only so much they can handle. There's points in conversations with children that you just simply say, trust me, you'll understand this when you get older. That's Jesus with his disciples. Now, what is it they can't bear? What can they not comprehend? They cannot bear or comprehend still that Jesus, the Messiah, must die and rise from the dead and ascend into heaven. That's why, verse 13, the spirit of truth will come. First, to guide them into all truth about the cross. When the cross is happening, they are going to misunderstand it in real time. It will only be later that they will understand it with conviction and clarity. And notice, second verse 13, the Spirit will declare things to come. So the cross and the resurrection will and have set in motion realities in this world that cannot be reversed. Not just the coming of Jesus, but faithful Christian witness in these last days. 
The Spirit knows and will declare these things in the future. Now, I don't want you to miss this. Only God knows and declares the future. And that's a very exact word that John is using, declare. It's a word only used in this sense for the work of God. John is telling us the Spirit is God. The Spirit should be understood to be God. And he's going to reveal revelatory truth to the disciples. I learned something revolutionary this week. This might be revolutionary for you. Did you know that technology has so advanced that you can now fill up 100 water balloons like at one time? In no time. Because there's a device that has been invented such that you no longer have to fill them up one at a time under the sink like we did when I was a kid. This did not astonish you like it did me this week. So if I had engaged in a water balloon war before this week, I would have been destroyed. Why? Because I would have been using outdated weaponry. Jesus will not and did not send outdated weaponry. When he went to the Father, the church will always have what is most powerful to convict the world, the spirit. And so the efficacy of our witness is not tied to our cleverness, our ingenuity, but always to the power of the spirit. We are dependent on the spirit. And it's why we make use of these appointed means of God, of grace. Like the preaching of God's word, the reading, the praying, the singing, the gathering, the Lord's Supper. God promises to work by his spirit through means. And he's glorified when we use his means to accomplish his ends. Because the spirit doesn't just convict and guide, but glorifies. Verse 14, Jesus. That's what we've seen. The spirit is like a spotlight. Shining on Jesus. The Spirit comes to make us more like Jesus. The Spirit comes not to declare Himself, but what the Son gives Him. Just as verse 15, the Son, notice, declared all that the Father has given Him. So the Spirit comes to convict, to guide, to glorify. Has the Spirit failed in His mission? No. And what is amazing about the spirit is that his power has not and will never be exhausted. There's hope for you and me and our own growth and grace. There's hope that the gospel still will go forward. The spirit will fulfill his mission. We go forward here because we're confident the spirit will work. Imagine a world without the work of the Spirit. Imagine your life without the work of the Spirit. Give thanks to God for the Spirit who comes to his disciples for whom this world was and is coming. Jesus teaches about the coming Spirit. And Jesus also teaches about coming sorrow. Coming sorrow. That's the second thing we see here. Coming sorrow. Look down at verse 16. We'll read through verse 24. 
a little while and you will see me no longer. And again, a little while and you will see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, what is this that he says to us? A little while and you will not see me. And again, a little while and you will see me. And because I'm going to the father. So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he is talking about. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him. So he said to them, is this what you were asking yourselves? What I meant by saying a little while and you will not see me. And again, a little while and you will see me. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. And that day you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive that your joy may be full. Not just the spirit that's coming, but sorrow. It wasn't too long before this moment, back in John 12, that some Gentiles came to the disciples and they said to them, Sir, we would see Jesus. And Jesus made clear to his disciples, the only way they will see me is when I am lifted up, glorified on the cross. And now Jesus is saying, you will see me no longer. And yet in a little while, you will see me. And of course, the disciples don't understand. They don't have any category that is going to die and be raised. Think about that. Maybe what you take for granted, certainly what we live in light of, what we proclaim here weekly, the disciples did not see it coming. I don't think that's because there's no hints in the Old Testament. There are but I think they simply didn't understand that the long-awaited Messiah must die. He must be raised. I also don't think they understood why. So for us to live on this side of the cross and the resurrection of Jesus is such a privileged position that countless millions could not have fathomed for centuries. What you know and see very clearly, Jesus was again being purposely ambiguous about. A little while you will not see me and then you will see me. What you know and see clearly the disciples couldn't handle yet. But they will be able to because they will see Jesus in a little while in a resurrected body. Jesus is clear, until then, sorrow is coming. Look at that contrast in verse 20. You will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. He's speaking of his death. 
what will cause them to weep terribly, the world will rejoice over. Jesus knows what motivates this world. He knows what this world loves. He knows who this world hates. And again, he's not sugarcoating the truth for his disciples. The world will hate you. And you will be sorrowful. He surprises us, doesn't he? He doesn't ever hide the cost of what it will mean to follow him. Now get this, if Jesus is honest about the cost, should we not also take him fully at his word about the rewards? Sorrow is coming, but your sorrow will turn into joy. Now, the more I looked at that, the more interesting it was to me. He does not say, after your sorrow will come joy. He says, your sorrow will turn into joy. Only by the power of the risen Christ can what was your sorrow work toward and become your joy. The resurrection makes the folly of the cross glory. And this means for the Christian we now live in a world of resurrected sorrow. Sorrow that must, must work for joy. And the master teacher that Jesus is, he points his disciples to childbirth. Now, I've seen this five times, and I can attest from a safe distance. The pain is real. When, verse 21, a woman gives birth, she has sorrow. The hour, again, the hour of agony and suffering has come. And the pain and the suffering is great. But that sorrow works for joy. Human life, what feels like death, results in life. Even more the cross, which will not feel like, but will be death, will bring resurrection, life, the greatest of sorrow, the greatest of joy. And the cross and the resurrection show us the pattern. Coming sorrow works toward lasting joy. Now, one thing we must not do is minimize sorrows that are real in this present age. What are those sorrows for you? What have those sorrows been for you? It is good and right to lament over your sorrows, sorrows of this world, to bring them to mind so that you can bring them honestly to Jesus. For the Christian, the resurrection means this. Your sorrows will be raised up for your joy. It may be in this age. It may be in the age to come. But Jesus will not waste your sorrow. And the resurrection is proof of it. You're going to see in wisdom then what you don't understand now. If you wrestle with this, just consider the depth of the sorrow to which Jesus went and was willing to go 
for your joy. He meets you in your sorrow and he promises you joy. Believe him. He was so committed to our joy that he went to the cross. Can you even imagine the kind of joy that is coming in this world? Now, some of you know the moment you came to faith. Some of you do not. But you probably remember the joy you knew in that moment. Some of you know joy in other things. There is more joy coming. If God planned a world in which he was going to raise his son from the dead in the middle of history, can you imagine what he has planned for the very end? Story will only get better. What we taste now, we will enjoy in fullness. Remember, this world is not nearly as serious about your joy as Jesus is. Joy overcomes the sorrow. In childbirth, certainly much more on the cross. And Jesus even says it makes you forget, it makes you no longer remember the sorrow. The sorrow will not compare to the joy. That's what Jesus says in verse 22. I will see you again, your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. Only the resurrection can undo the sorrow of the cross. So committed to his disciples' joy that Jesus goes into death to secure it. The day of resurrection is coming. That is the day in verse 23. That's the day when Jesus' disciples will ask nothing of him. Instead, they will ask in Jesus' name to the Father, and he will give to them. I take Jesus to be saying they will ask nothing of Jesus because they will ask the Father in Jesus' name. They've not prayed to the Father to this point, but they will, verse 24, because Jesus will go to him. They they will only understand then what they don't understand now. But once Jesus has been raised, his disciples will be in this old, fallen world, but they will be alive to new spiritual realities, able to freely ask of the Father. And Jesus says the Father will be extraordinarily generous. Verse 23, whatever you ask in Jesus' name, that's according to his will and With his words in scripture, the Father will give. Ask, and you will receive. The Father will delight to answer the prayers of Jesus' disciples. Jesus is so clear. We should frequently ask because the Father delights to frequently answer. Pastor Tim Keller is a pastor who recently died and was used greatly by God. And he said this, the only person who dares wake up a king at 3 a.m. for a glass of water is a child. We have that kind of access. Are you living below the access given to you, purchased for you by Jesus Christ? You do realize Jesus didn't save you from the wrath to come and to know the Father so that you would feel guilty all the time about your prayer life. So that you would think, I've got to pray today, it's my duty. But that you would see prayer as the privilege that is yours before your kind, holy, heavenly Father who rules the world. And you would think to yourself, I cannot believe I have this privilege. 
the access that is mine. If you had a meeting tomorrow with His Highness Sheikh Saud, you would prepare for that meeting because you would understand you're being given significant access. But whether it's our ruler or any ruler in the world, we are deeply mistaken if we think that even compares to the access that you as a Christian have moment by moment in this world. The Father delights to hear us pray and answers our prayers. Why? Verse 24, that your joy may be full. I am I am regularly floored, floored by the, the things that we have the privilege to pray for just in this body that we know about and can pray for. Come pray with us when we pray as a body together. It's such a joy to see the Lord answer prayers. JC was walking on a treadmill this week without hands. Praise be to God. Ethel's daughter, the obstacles are being overcome for her to come here. We pray just this last week for church plants and ministries and this country and surrounding countries, personal evangelism, the salvation of real people. And we see prayers answered. So here is God. He doesn't just give us prayer. He gives us the privilege to see prayers answered so we'll have joy. How kind must God be? Sorrow is coming, but it must work for our joy. So because of Jesus' death and resurrection, sorrow is like a delivery man that can only work to bring you joy. All of that is way too good to be true. But it's true. And we believe it. But it's only true because of the final reality that we see in this text. Number three, the overcoming Christ. The overcoming Christ. Verses 25 to 23. 33. Look down at verse 25. I've said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you. Because you have loved me. And I believe that I came from God. I came from the Father and have come into the world. And now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. His disciples said, ah, now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. Jesus answered them, do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Ambiguity will lead to clarity. The hour is coming, verse 25. Jesus will speak plainly because the cross and the resurrection are not his future possibilities. At that point, they will be historic events in view of the world that can never be undone. In that day, verse 27, they will know the Father's love. No distance from the Father. 
So Jesus has taught about his love for the Father and the Father's love for the Son, but now he's emphasizing not just access to the Father, the Father's love. Father himself loves you. And that's grounded here in the disciples rightly loving and believing in the Son and that he came from the Father. So the Father's love is set on those who have seen the Son, who he is, and have set their love on him. You know how much pride a father takes in his son or his daughter. How much more the one who is eternally father for his eternal son. To love him is to have been first loved by him. And so to know the father's unchanging love, it's in that day, verse 28, the son's revealing and saving work will be finished. He leaves the world, he goes to the father. So what he's done is he's accomplished his mission on earth. He goes into heaven as son of God in power to begin his mission in heaven. And yet his disciples don't understand. Verse 29, they they think they've come to understand Jesus. He's speaking plainly. Uh, No one needs to question you in the sense that no one needs to test you. This, they say, is why they believe Jesus has come from God. Now, I think they're saying the right things, but their faith isn't what they think it is. Jesus knows his disciples better than they know themselves. That's why he says, probably very sarcastically in verse 31, do you now believe? Really? You think that your faith is going to be strong in the midst of the events that are about to come? He wasn't naive about the world. He's not naive about his disciples. That's why he says, verse 32, the hour is coming and has come when you will be scattered, each to his own home. He was steeped in the Old Testament. And he's drawing here on the prophet Zechariah who prophesied very clearly in Zechariah 13, 7 that the good shepherd of God's people, not a bad one as would be expected, will be struck and the sheep will be scattered. And Jesus understands this is about to be fulfilled in him in his death. And the disciples will scatter. They will abandon him at the very moment he so desperately needs them to be with him scattered to their homes. They will leave Jesus alone. Do you realize Jesus wasn't just preparing the disciples for their own coming sorrow? He was preparing himself for his. The agony of the cross, not just what he will endure at the hands of this world, but what he will endure when he is abandoned by his own disciples the world will crucify him. His disciples will abandon him. But he will not be alone. The father is with him. The contrast here is faithless disciples, faithful father. That's the contrast of what happens at the cross and Jesus' confidence as he goes to the cross. It's the confidence of every true son that in Christ Jesus, you are not alone. Father is with you. Father through the Son, by the Spirit, working always for your eternal good. This is the confidence of Jesus. It's the closeness of Jesus to the Father. He will go to the place of greatest shame 
confident. The Father goes with him. And it is the confident that propels you as a Christian to the hardest, costliest, loneliness, loneliest obediences and spurs you on to be faithful. Christ grows to the cross in peace, to win peace. And that's what he says is the purpose of these things. Verse 33, that in him, they, we may have peace. But these things is this whole farewell discourse that we've been looking at for the last weeks. Jesus is the vine, the coming spirit, the hatred of the world, sorrow and joy in days to come. Why did Jesus teach all of this? He's very clear that we might have his peace. If this world cannot ultimately take his life, it cannot take his peace. Do you see the heart of the Savior as he walks to the cross? It is for his disciples who will abandon him, concerned for them, their peace, not his own. And this is an indescribable gift because, verse 33, in this world, you will have tribulation. Tribulation is not something that should only be expected at the very end way in the future, but from the beginning. I I wonder if one reason many Christians think that tribulation is only something sometime way off in the distant future, or for those people only in that place, is because they've minimized the teaching of Jesus, his commands, or they've made Jesus look very comfortable in their own culture, such that he can be accommodated by it. We don't look for tribulation. But Jesus is clear, if you follow him, you will have tribulation in this world. But tribulation will not have the last word. Take heart. I have overcome the world. This world, a godless system that has organized itself in rebellion against God, will not have the final say against Jesus. By dying and being raised, he overcame it. He assures our victory. And yet our overcoming will, like Jesus's, look like defeat in this world. We will overcome by faithfully obeying, no matter the tribulation. And what feels like sorrows and setbacks to you are because of the resurrected Christ, the means by which you will overcome. They will be the eternal proof of how you overcame. The overcoming Christ means that our defeats, our deaths, will not have the last word, just as they did not have the last word for Jesus. The Apostle John would know this kind of obedience and tribulation in the world. He would end up alone on an island, Patmos. So also would the Apostle John's disciple, Polycarp, Polycarp was the pastor, the bishop of the church in Smyrna, present-day Turkey. In the second century, he was beloved by those that he shepherded, and he was hated by the world. Persecution broke out against Christians, and they were being fed to wild beasts in the arena. And as this was taking place, the crowd, lusting for blood of Christians, began to call for Polycarp. There was a search party that 
went to Polycarp's home, who at this point is more than 80 years old. When they arrived there, this old Christian man gave his captors food and drink. And they eventually saw that it was senseless to make this kind old man such a public martyr. And the proconsul, despite the the yells of the crowd, pleaded with, with Polycarp, curse Christ and I will release you. Polycarp replied to him, 86 years I have served him. He has never done me wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who has saved me? The proconsul continued to plead with him. I will have you burned alive. Polycarp ultimately said, you threaten fire that burns for an hour and is over. But the judgment on the ungodly is forever. As the fire was prepared, Polycarp prayed, Father, I bless you that you have deemed me worthy of this day and hour that I might take a portion of the martyrs in the cup of Christ. Among these, may I today be welcomed before thy face as a rich and acceptable sacrifice. What is it that gave Polycarp and so many others names we will not know until the other side of eternity? Grace to live and to die by faith in the face of the world's greatest tribulation. It's the overcoming Christ, confident that he has overcome and even we through death will overcome as well. It is the overcoming Christ that is guaranteed for the coming spirit and the guarantee that every coming sorrow in your life will turn to your eternal joy.